I wonder how many of you watched the Festival of Remembrance last night. I remember as a young boy, growing up, it was one thing I was allowed to stay up late to watch. Now, as a young boy, I, to my parents, hey, let me watch the films. Let me watch the movies. <laughs> let me watch Match the Day. And my mum and dad would say, you can watch this, the Festival of Remembrance. As a young boy, I didn't really grasp it. I didn't understand it. I wanted to stay up to watch Match of the Day. It's a sad, sad occasion, the Festival of Remembrance. Last night, me and Kerry, we caught the last 20 minutes, and as they're all stood there and the petals, the poppies fall down from the roof, you see people with tears in their eyes. You see servicemen who are remembering loved ones that they lost. You see sorrow. You see sadness. And we see a world, a world that is caught up in disarray, in war, famine. We get a picture of the world as it's not supposed to be. We've heard Daniel talk about that already. So is there any good news in this world? Is there any good news in troubled times? I was thinking, is there any good news when the war was on? I did a project when I was in year seven at school, first year of secondary school. We did World War I and World War II. And I have to admit that a lot of my knowledge of those two world wars uh, come about from the project that I um, took, that I was part of uh, with a group of other guys. Uh, and, of course, I don't know about the World War I and World War II in depth, but what I do know shocked me. And I was trying to search for good news stories in this troubled time. And there was one that really caught my attention. Here he is, Bertie Felstead, the last survivor of the 1915 Christmas Day football match. I remember researching about this. It intrigued me. I wonder if you know the story. Maybe it's one of the good news stories of war. So I checked it up on the internet, Bertie Felstead. This is what he said just before he died in 2001. He's the last remaining survivor of that match. And he wanted people to understand what happened on that day. On Christmas Eve, he was stationed in northern France with his colleagues near the village of Laventi when he heard the Germans in a trench 100 metres away singing Silent Night. In reply, the Royal Welsh Fusiliers sang Good King Wenceslas. Well could have thought of a, maybe a better um, Christmas carol to sing than that in reply to Silent Night. Well, anyway, on Christmas Day, after some shouting between both trenches, he and his colleagues got out of that icy trench and greeted the Germans. Bertie Felstead recalled that the Germans probably were already out of their trenches before the British got out. He claimed that nothing was planned and that what happened was entirely spontaneous. A football was produced from somewhere, though we could not recall from where. 
is not so much as a game, more of a kick around, a free-for-all. There could have been 50 on each side for all I know. I played because I really liked football. I don't know how long it lasted, probably half an hour. No one was keeping score. The truce ended when a British major ordered the British soldiers back to their trench with a reminder that they were to kill the Hun, not to make friends with him. One good news story in troubled times. One good news story of rivals coming together, playing a bit of football, having some fun, forgetting everything that they were there to do. Good news in troubled times. And as Daniel was saying, cause today is a day of remembrance. I don't appreciate it. I'm certain I don't. Too young to really uh, grasp World War I and World War II. And there's no one close to me who serves uh, in the forces now who are part of war. I'm distant from war. I'm far from it. I don't appreciate it. And today, if there is one day, I want to appreciate it a bit more. But as Daniel was saying, there is one death, one sacrifice that I can remember today. I can remember it because it is close to home. Because it was for me. And Mark chapter 8 talks about it being for you. So I wonder if you're a Christian here today, do you really appreciate the death of Jesus? And if you're not a Christian, maybe this passage will help you grasp exactly the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. Let's go and pick up uh, with Mark 8. There's three things about this news. Firstly, this news is shocking. Here's the news from Jesus to his disciples. Mark 8, 31. He then, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. There's three things. Firstly, this news that the disciples received on that day was shocking. Was really shocking. And it troubled them. Because we've got to grasp the context of this. Jesus is walking around with his disciples. He's been doing this for a good three years now. They're his boys. They've learnt to follow him. They love him. They trust him. And Mark writes in the first eight chapters about Jesus and his identity. As Jesus goes about doing his business with his disciples, his identity is under scrutiny. People that are seeing him do the things that he's doing are asking questions. People who are hearing Jesus teach are asking big questions. Right at the beginning of Mark, Mark 1, 27. People around him who have just witnessed Jesus teaching and sending out an evil spirit cry, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. Mark 4, 41. The disciples, after he calms the storm in the boat, they cry out, Who is this man? Even the wind and waves obey him. The first eight chapters of Mark 
He wants us to try and grasp the identity of this man, Jesus. And here is the crucial point in Mark's account of the life and death of Jesus. As Jesus is walking around with his disciples, he turns to them. Who do people say I am? Verse 28. The disciples reply back. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. This is what people are saying of you at the moment, Jesus. That you're a special man. Not quite sure of your identity. We'll put him in that bracket of one of the prophets. One of those special guys. Quite uncertain. Not sure. Let's fast forward 2,000 years. If I talk about Jesus to friends that don't yet know him, that are not Christians, and ask them who they think Jesus is, I'm certain there are several different responses that I get and that you will get if you ask that question. A good man of history. Jesus, I think he is a man who lived. I think he is a historical figure. A good teacher of moral ethics. Yeah, he's a good guy. What about a great role model? How to live our lives. All good answers. All scraping around to try and find his real identity. I know some friends who would say, he's a myth. Made up. Make belief. I know some friends that would go further. He's a lie. It's not true. I know some friends that would say, not even thought about him. I know some friends who would say, to be honest with you, Lanky, I'm not bothered. I'm not bothered who he is because he has no bearing and relevance on my life today. A whole range of different answers. And in Mark's Gospel, no one has yet arrived at the true identity of Jesus. Not yet. And you see what Jesus does? He doesn't even address that response. He doesn't even say, well, that's interesting. Do you know who I really am? Instead, he looks straight at Simon Peter, straight at him, says, what about you? What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Let's forget our friends for the moment. Let's forget about our work colleagues and about the answers that they may give us, about our teammates, those that we play sport with, just friends, about family members. Let's forget them for one moment. And what about you? You. Who do you say Jesus is? Because this is a critical question. This is an enormous question of, of history, of your life. Who do you say Jesus is? You've maybe been a Christian for many years. And you say, I know Jesus. Yes, yeah, Saviour and Lord. Yet in reality, all he might be is just a card that you pop in your back pocket. Get him out when you need to. Bit of a hobby. Sunday morning. 
That's when I know who he is. Maybe you're someone who's not a Christian. You've never even attempted to answer it. Maybe you're antagonistic against the gospel. It's a lie, I don't believe it. Maybe you're a Christian who this morning is overwhelmed with joy. Because you can say deep down in your heart, Yes, he's my saviour. And he's my lord. He's my master, he's my king. And he's all I live for this morning. Maybe you can say that. Well, what does Peter say? Back to Mark 8. Peter turns back and says, You are the Christ. What is Peter saying? Peter's saying that, Jesus, you're not merely one of those prophets. You're not merely a signpost pointing to God and his kingdom coming. He's saying that you are king. He's saying that the future is fulfilled in you, Jesus. Peter's saying that it's all about you. Jesus, you are the saviour that Israel has been waiting for for over 400 years. You see, the Messiah was a big deal for the Jews at that time. It was a huge deal. For 400 years, all had been quiet. And the prophets of the Old Testament, a lot of the prophets' words had not come about. They were waiting. And Peter, by saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah, he is claiming that you are God's Son. You are Him. In the flesh, you are God. You've come down. What does Jesus reply? He says in verse 31, he teaches them, of the Son of Man. He calls himself the Son of Man. Why does Jesus call himself that? Peter says you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one, you are the one chosen by God, you are the one who has come to save Israel. And Jesus says, now, here's what the Son of Man must come and do. I am the Son of Man. What does Jesus mean? Well, it's an Old Testament phrase. And it refers to the human agent who would execute God's saving purposes. The Son of Man is God's representative on earth who will come and save. It's the Son of Man who bears God's authority both to forgive and to judge. And so, here's the shocking part for Peter. A really shocking part. Because in Peter's mind, and in every Jew's mind, the Messiah was to come and do one great thing. This is what it was. Was to come and bring the people of Israel out of their misery, out of a history of conflict, a history of being second best, and he was come to come and rule and reign so that the nation of Israel would be huge would be massive, would conquer every enemy. See, Peter had in mind, as did every Jew, that Jesus would be triumphant. That Jesus, in his mind, would ride into battle, would lead the forces forward. It's the Messiah, the one that was to come and save the Jews, save Israel. 
But Jesus has got very different ideas of what the Messiah, of what the Christ, of what the Son of Man has come to do. And so at this pinnacle point in Mark's Gospel, we've grasped who the identity of Jesus is. Peter's the first one who claims that he's the man who he says he is. Peter's the first one in Mark's Gospel. Yet, still, Peter does not grasp what Jesus has come to do. And so, Jesus talks about the things that he must come and do. He must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. Can you imagine Peter's reaction? We get a snapshot of it here. And what Peter does... Verse 32, he spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Get the picture. Jesus has just told Peter that he's come to do these things after Peter has rightly claimed who Jesus is. Peter said, you're God's son. You're the anointed one sent by him. You're the one who has come to rescue. You are the one that all the prophets talk about. Yet Peter now grabs hold of Jesus. Can you imagine? He maybe takes him by the arm. That's what my grandmother used to do to me when I was a, a little bit naughty. And she would just grab me, my arm would be like that, and just like a firm grab, take me aside, just to spin me around, just so she could talk to me. Not with any harsh words, but she wanted to put me right. Can you imagine Peter doing the same? Jesus, hold on. And Mark says that he rebukes him. Jesus, I know who you are, but this definitely, definitely doesn't match up to what I think you're going to do. Peter rebukes God's son, the anointed one. It's a bizarre thought. You see, Peter hasn't grasped what Jesus has come to do. And if he hasn't grasped what Jesus has come to do, some would say doubtful that Peter's really grasped who Jesus is. What has Jesus come to do? Well, he will suffer many things. Peter thought he would be victorious, he would be a conqueror. Jesus is, or he will be rejected by the authorities. Peter thought he would rule the authorities. Jesus said, I must die, I will be killed and Peter thought that the Messiah would bring hope and life and joy this was not expected, Peter could not grasp this well, the message is shocking but the message is simple because at the end of verse 31 Sorry. Where are we? 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Mark wants us to grasp that this is straight talking. It's not complicated. Jesus hasn't got a strategic plan of what he's going to come and do. He hasn't got it all labelled out with subheadings and headings and 
paragraphs. He doesn't lay it before the disciples to say, hey, try and understand this, boys. All the best. Get your heads around this. What does he do? He speaks plainly of this. It's quite straightforward. It is simple. You see, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. In Mark 2 already, the disciples have experienced Jesus heal a paralysed man. And his boys brought him along, thinking that Jesus was going to heal him. And Jesus talks to the paralysed man and says, Your faith has forgiven you. I'll forgive you because of your faith. And everyone around was thinking, what is Jesus doing? This man needs healed. And Jesus himself speaking to the man and saying, your sins are forgiven. He's saying this is your greatest need met. Your greatest need is that your sins would be forgiven. This isn't some complicated idea that the disciples have to address, have to get their heads round. Throughout Mark's Gospel, he paints a clear picture of Jesus and what he came to do. To seek and save the lost. Later on in Mark 10, 45, we see Jesus explain exactly what this looks like. And he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is how Jesus is going to lead his people. This is how Jesus is going to save Israel. This is how Jesus is going to prove that he is the anointed one sent by God. And there are crucial, crucial ideas that the Christian needs to grasp. It's not complicated. Jesus spoke plainly of it. And this is it simply, in a nutshell. This is the gospel. That God is a good God. That God is a creator God. That he created us so that we might enjoy everything about him. That we might be in relationship with him. That we might glorify him in every sphere of life. The first point. First idea that Christians would believe. Second, that mankind has rejected God. That mankind has rejected God's rule over them. That man has sinned and turned his back. And that's universal. That's for every single one of us. And third, the Christians would believe that the consequences of that rejection are death. Death is the punishment that every single one of us face. And it's a right punishment from a good God. And not just death, but total separation from the goodness of God. And fourth, Christians believe that Jesus has died to forgive sin. That Jesus died in my place. That Jesus died as a substitute for me. It should be me. Yet Jesus stretches out his arms and says, Forgive them. I forgive Ian. I forgive him. And then the Christians would believe that all I have to do is respond by trusting in him. Trusting that he took the punishment that I deserve. Trusting that God poured out his wrath on Jesus the Son rather than Ian. 
And then finally that Christians will believe that on the third day he rose again. He conquered death. For death could not hold King Jesus. He's achieved two things for me. My sins have been forgiven. I'm now right before a good God. And secondly, I've got everlasting life with him. Because he smashed death to pieces. Oh, it's quite simple. It's quite straightforward. There's nothing complicated about the Christian message. Yet on the other hand, it is so profound. It is quite remarkable. We will take our lifetime and an eternity to grasp it. To grapple with it. That the great God of heaven should come as a man and die in my place. I had a conversation with my wife yesterday. It was a good conversation. We sat on the couch and Kerry turned to me and said, But why does he love me? How can he love me? And it's the profoundness of the gospel. Because the Bible says that I'm pretty much unlovable. I've rejected God and everything about him. Yet the Bible says that because God is love in his very essence, can love me. And he wants to love me. Why does he love me? Here's the simple answer. Because he can love you. Not based on anything about you. Not because you're lovable. No. He can love you. Because in his essence he is love regardless of who you are and what you've done. And also, he wants to love you. He can love you and he wants to love you. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. How fitting that on this day of remembrance, we remember a different death. A death that is totally sacrificial. Sacrificial to the point that it brings me before a good and holy God. And I stand right before him. Those soldiers that gave their lives on the field, that continue to give their lives in the field of battle gave their lives to protect the ones that they love. What do we see in Jesus? He died on the cross as a sacrifice in place of those that should be punished. His death was a ransom. His death was the price that it took to bring you and I back to a good, great and loving God. And so, finally... Good news in troubled times. This news is shocking. It was not expected. This news is simple. It was not complicated for the disciples. And this news is serious. And it demanded a response. So what are the two responses? Well, it's a command. From verse 34, he called a crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said... This is Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. You see the command. First of all, the person that 
truly wants to follow me, the person that trusts me, he must deny himself. This is the first step in repentance. You cannot do it. There's nothing in you that is good in your essence. You've turned your back. You cannot make it back to God on your own. You've got to deny yourself. You have to acknowledge that you're not right before a holy God. Second, you must take up your cross. You must not be ashamed of trusting Jesus and his words. Face everything that life has to throw at you and trust him. What it looks like to be a Christian saying, yes, I do trust Jesus. Yeah, I'm not going to follow the ways of the world. No, I'm not. Well, deny self, take up cross and follow me. Come and walk in my ways, says Jesus, not in the ways of the world. Come, turn from those ways. Come and follow me. Trust me. It's the command. And secondly, it's a warning. The news is serious. It demands a response. Firstly, a command. And secondly, a warning to take heed of. Because he goes on in verse 35, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world? yet forfeit his soul. Jesus is saying, do you grasp me? Oh, the world has so much to offer. So much to offer. You see the desperation of people, X-Factor last night if you watched it. Only watched the last two minutes, that's what everyone says. (laughs) I watched the whole programme. Well, no, I didn't. I only did watch only half of it. But it's sheer desperation. It's the whole world to those contestants. It's everything that they go through to the next round. You see it plainly before your eyes. And you see it everywhere in the world. You see it in sport. Match the day, the programme after. Scoring a goal is everything to that player who's scoring. And to the crowds on the terraces, it is everything if their team wins. Jesus is saying, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? And we must be careful here. Because Jesus is saying that, hey, the good things of life, well, he's not saying that the good things of life don't matter. He's not saying, hey, work hard at being a good father, a good mother. Work hard at being a good teacher or a doctor or a profession. He's not saying that it's not important. But he is saying, if that is your whole world, 
That's massive. He's not saying that exams and education, career isn't good. But he's saying if that's your whole world, that's huge. That's huge. And that is wrong. Because if you gain your ho- the whole world, yet forfeit your soul, it counts for nothing. It counts for nothing. Absolutely nothing. But if your entire life, your profession, being a father and mother or grandfather, child, if it comes under the headship of God, then it really matters. Then everything in life matters. And the last bit of his warning is stark. It's a horrible warning. And it's a warning that every single one of us must pay heed to. My family must pay heed to. My friends must pay heed to. You must pay heed to. Verse 38, because if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Of course, a chilling warning. This is how it is. Okay, if you're going to be ashamed of me now, then when I come and the Bible is true and right and the promise of Jesus coming again or when death comes, we will be judged. Jesus says, I'll be ashamed of you. Is that fair? You desert me. You reject me. You don't accept my offer of forgiveness of salvation. Well, I will not accept you. I'll be ashamed of you. I'll desert you as you deserted me. God, if you do not know Jesus here this morning, would you consider delving into the truth just a little bit more? Would you consider grappling with God's word, trying to get your head round it? Would you ask God to help you believe the simplicity of the gospel? Because the consequences of not believing are harsh, but they're right and they're real. Remembered last night at the Festival of Remembrance, the last phrase of the small talk that they give at the end, from the going down of the sun till the morning, we will remember them. If you're a Christian here this morning, will you remember the good news of Jesus once again? Will you remember it and ponder over it? And let the truth of the wonder of the cross sink deep into your heart. For some of you, it might be just a case of I don't accept it because I just don't believe that this is true. I had a great conversation with a family member recently. Don't even talk to me about God's word because I don't believe that this is true. So let's just have a conversation, and not on the Bible, just on your belief. Of course, hard to have a conversation then because my whole belief is built upon this word. So I wonder if that's the stumbling block for you. How do I know it's true? How do I know that God's word 
is true. Well, we come right back to Bertie Felstead. You see, I believe that the sources of Bertie's account of that football match on Christmas Eve in 1915 are true. I don't know Bertie. I've never met him. I don't know the person that wrote this up. It could be a lie. But I believe it's true. And there are other sources that document this evidence and I believe that they're true. Well, if you struggle just accepting that this is true, research. Historians say that there is so much evidence that this word, that this book, that these 40 books all put together are true. They're authentic. They're real. They're trustworthy. That's a huge stumbling block for my friends who don't know Jesus. We don't believe that this is true. Well, don't leave it there. Please do research and grasp and come to your own conclusion if this word is true. And if you're a Christian, let it grip your heart. Let it grip your heart this morning so that your heart would be pumping with joy at being saved. Do you remember him with fondest memories? As the people remembered, lost, with fondest memories, on this day they look back and remember. Think of the time that they spent with loved ones. They think of the sacrifice that their loved ones made for them. Christian, ponder today. And if you're not a Christian, shocking, simple, serious, demands a response from you and from me.